over the next six weeks, we're going to look at everything we can to sort of come to understand what the sacraments are, why they're important, um, how they should affect us, how we should approach them, what role they have in the church, and, and everything else that Scripture might tell us about them. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, but before I do, let me go ahead and encourage you to turn to Romans 4. We're going to look at one verse this morning as we enter in on the study of the sacraments. And we're going to look at Romans 4.11. And as you're turning there, I'll go ahead and pray for us. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the Lord's Day. We're thankful for every blessing that you have conferred on us in Christ and that you give us in your church. We praise you that you are um, the head of the church, Lord Jesus, that you have promised to do your greatest work among your people as we gather together to worship you, as your word is central, as the gospel is proclaimed, as we call on you in prayer, and as your sacraments are observed. We pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for all the means of grace. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to understand better what you have appointed for your church and how we are to benefit from what you have appointed for us to grow in grace. We pray that you'd bless our time together and that it would be uh, spiritually enriching. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans 4.11, the Apostle Paul is uh, writing about Abraham being justified by faith alone, and he's talking about the time sequence in which Abraham is justified, and then when he receives the sign of the covenant, which in Abraham's day was circumcision at that epoch in salvation history. And um, and as Paul is talking about the importance of Abraham being justified before he was circumcised, um, he, he then had believer circumcision, and then he was to give that circumcision to his uh, sons when they were born at eight days of age. We're going to talk about circumcision in the weeks ahead in much more depth, but uh, the Apostle Paul makes this really important statement in Romans 4.11 about Abraham. He says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, and you didn't know this was a, a class on the sacraments, if I were to ask you what, what are the most important things um, about a conservative biblical church, and you started rattling off the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel, prayer, fellowship, I would venture to say sacraments would be very low on the list of immediate answers or not even make it on the list at all, which is sort of a sad thing because God has appointed visible and sensible signs for his people he has deemed it necessary to give his people signs, not necessary for him, necessary for us and for the building up of our faith in the church. And he has done so throughout all of redemptive history. It has been the ordinary way God has worked in accompanying his word with sensible, visible, tangible signs and seals. Paul's going to call circumcision, which is going to go for all the other sacraments, a sign and a seal. That's going to become hugely important as we look at this. But let me ask this question at the outset. Where do we find the first sacraments in the Bible? And yes, it is in Genesis. Where? Well, that's the first preaching of the gospel, the Proto-Evangelium. 
and it's close. Chapter 2. Where in chapter 2 do we find the first sacraments? The trees in the garden. Now, I want to talk about the trees in the garden briefly. The trees in the garden are sacramental in nature. Now, the word sacrament comes from a Latin word that bears the root to put money down for a pledge or to take an oath. It then gets carried over in history, and it it takes on the idea of mystery. So if you were to read Jerome's um, if you were to read Jerome's Latin version of the Bible, the Vulgate, you would find the word sacramentum uh, in Latin. It's not in Greek and Hebrew. It's not, it's not in the original God-breathed scriptures, the word sacrament. But the word sacramentum is carried over and used about something mysterious. So if you read about the mystery of the seven stars in Revelation in the Vulgate, the word sacramentum is used. It's, it is almost always used of the word mystery. Now, um, before we look at the trees in the garden, we have to ask the question, wh- why would we even use the word sacrament if it's not in the Bible? And there's been much debate about this. There's huge debate throughout church history about whether we should use the word sacrament or not. Our Reformed Baptist friends are much more comfortable with the word ordinance so that they actually prefer using that in their 1689 London Baptist Confession as over against um, the Reformed Presbyterian Anglican um, congregational use of sacrament. The Puritans were fine using the word sacrament. They didn't have a problem with it. They didn't think they were running the risk of falling into a Roman Catholic abuse, which they were often taking on. That would be sacramentalism, which we'll talk about. But the Puritans often used the word sacrament because they understood that there was something mysterious about these visible signs and seals that God had given. There was something, while yes, we can discern what God is trying to do with these things, there is nevertheless something mysterious about it. There's something that on the surface we can say, I'm really not sure, I'm really not sure how this is working. I'm really not sure how God's graces can fade through this. I'm really not sure um, how how God has set this apart to be an instrumental means of grace. Uh, now, before we talk about uh, sacraments being signs and seals, I want to talk about the trees in the garden. Now, when God creates Adam, he enters into a covenant of works with Adam or covenant of life. And what does he say to Adam? What are, what are the conditions of the covenant? Before the fall. Well, he gives them every tree except. except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does he say to them? Yeah, and the day that you eat of it and dying, you will die. So there is a call from the Lord for Adam as he enters into this covenant relationship with Adam as the representative of all mankind that Adam has to obey God perfectly, personally, and continually. That's what our confession says. Perfect, personal, perpetual, the three Ps of law-keeping. Adam has to obey. He has to pass the test. Um, He would, no doubt, be walking by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and on his mind would be God's word about the tree. Now, This is very important because when we get into a study of sacraments, we're going to ask the question, why do we even need the sacraments if we have God's word? Isn't God's word sufficient? Uh, I grew up in a home where 
um, the sacraments were viewed very low on the, the totem pole of importance, and the word was, rightly so, at the top. God's word is always most important. Um, in fact, you will not even be able to understand what a sacrament is apart from the word. Francis Turden, the great 17th century um, theologian out of Geneva, uh, will, will often in his treatment of the sacraments talk about how, and, and quoting Augustine, that the sacrament is dependent on the word. Well, the trees in the garden were dependent on the word of God. Um, there was nothing magical about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't a magic tree. The tree of life wasn't a magic tree. It didn't have some special fruit that we're all searching for that not only is nutritious, but it gives some metaphysical data, data bank of knowledge. Um, how, how does that tree function in the covenant of works? Well, God is creator. God creates Adam. God says you can have everything. Everything's yours, except for this one tree. What the Lord is doing is he is reminding Adam that he is a creature, that God is the creator. He is giving him a probationary test, and he is saying, now this will be the test by which your obedience will be tested in the covenant of works. And he's given Adam the word about the tree, and what Adam's supposed to do, and this is marvelous, Adam is supposed to learn the knowledge of good and evil either by obedience or by disobedience. So he's going to gain the knowledge of good and evil, but he's going to gain it either by obeying or by disobeying. So if Adam had passed the probation, if he had held fast to God's word, if God had upheld him by grace and Adam had not eaten of the tree when Satan came in and made the test a temptation, Adam would have gained experientially the knowledge of good and evil by choosing the good and rejecting the evil. This is how the tree works. This is how a sacrament works. Nothing magic. It's just like every other tree. But this tree is the tree God has set apart as a visible sacrament of the covenant by which Adam is to gain by obeying the knowledge of good from evil by choosing the good and rejecting the evil. But he chooses the evil and rejects the good and learns the knowledge of good and evil in a way that is converse to what God in his fullness and blessedness would have given to Adam if he had obeyed. The tree of life is also a sacrament. Now, the tree of life is even more confusing in a sense because um, the Bible says that when Adam sinned, that God did what? Banished him, right? He's exiled just like Israel will be exiled later in Old Covenant history. He's, he's expelled east of Eden. God puts the cherubim with the flaming swords going every which way, showing that there's no way back into the garden. And what is God keeping Adam from? The tree of life, lest he take and reach and eat and live forever. Now, when I was a boy, I, I read that and I thought, wow, there's a tree that you can really eat and live forever. Um, again, it's not a magic tree. It's just like any other tree. But God set that tree apart to be the reward if Adam had obeyed. Jonathan Edwards has a really interesting 
speculation in one of his uh, miscellanies where he's talking about um, how could Adam not have eaten of the tree of life already because God gave him to eat of every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Edward's speculation, and it's speculation, but I actually think he's right, is that the tree of life had not yet borne fruit and that the moment Adam would have obeyed or disobeyed and passed the temptation, the tree of life bore its fruit. Very interesting speculation. But Adam is banished. Um, He does not have access to God's grace at that point. He doesn't have access to the reward of his obedience. He hasn't fulfilled the conditions of God's covenant, and he is excommunicated. He's cut off from the sacraments at that point. He has no more access to the the presence of God at that point. He has no more access to the worship of God. He is banished. He is dead in sins and uh, trespasses. He is now under the wrath and curse of God. Nevertheless, we see from the very beginning that God is dealing with his people, both by his word and by the use of sensible, tangible, visible signs and seals of his covenant. Now, We read Romans 4.11, and Paul will talk about circumcision as the sign and the seal of the righteousness uh, that Abraham had by faith before he was circumcised. And um, almost all reform writers are going to place an emphasis on the fact that what is true of circumcision is de facto true of any other sacrament. So when Paul defines circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith, then we ought to be able to take that definition and apply that to any other sacrament in the Bible. Uh, Francis Turden defines sacraments in this way. Sacraments are sacred, visible signs and seals. I have not been recording any of this here, Chuck, I'm sorry. Uh, Sacred, visible signs and seals divinely instituted to signify and seal to our consciences the promises of saving grace in Christ, and in turn to testify our faith and piety and obedience toward God. Let me read that again. Sacraments are sacred, visible signs and seals, divinely instituted to signify and seal to our consciences the promises of saving grace in Christ. I'm going to stop there. Now, before we embark on a study of the different sacraments in scripture, we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we mean by a sign and a seal? Well, a sign is easy, right? Um, a sign is pointing beyond itself to something. I had a professor in seminary who said, um, if you're driving down the street and you're hungry and you, um, your kids are complaining in the back seat like they do when they're hungry, and uh, asking when you're gonna eat and when you're gonna get there, and you see a sign for a restaurant, You don't pull over and stop at the sign and sit there and say, okay, kids, if we just sit here long enough, food is going to, by osmosis, appear in our car, in our hands. You go to what, what the sign is pointing to. In the same way, the sacraments point to something. They point beyond themselves. Uh, the tree of life, for instance, uh, I believe with a lot of writers throughout church history that that was a type of Christ that the tree of life was prefiguring eternal life, which now is only to be had in Christ. And so when the tree of life appears in the book of Revelation, that is a type of Jesus. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a sign. It's not a literal tree um, on both sides of the river. That's metaphysically impossible 
for a tree to be on both sides of the river, a single tree. But Jesus is everywhere in glory, and, and it's representing him and his saving work um, and feeding on him. So, so we have to understand, we have to have a theology of symbols. We have to understand that God has, in his word, breathed out symbols and signs. God often uses symbolic language in the Psalms. Um, uh, the Lord will talk about uh, this one being born in Zion and that one being born in Zion. And he's not talking about people physically being born in Jerusalem. He's talking about people being born from the heavenly Zion. All these nations are born there. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's symbolic language. Are there seven Holy Spirits or is there one Holy Spirit? Well, the book of Revelation says grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and from uh, the one who is to come and from Jesus Christ and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, are there seven spirits or is that symbolic language of the Holy Spirit? Clearly, that's a Trinitarian uh, benediction, introduction. And um, everywhere else in the Bible, God is using symbolic language to describe spiritual truths. In the same way, the sacraments are visible, tangible, sensible things that God has set apart to signify something to us. And I'm going to say both before the fall and after the fall, what they are signifying is Jesus Christ. So if we're going to identify a sacrament in the Bible, it has to be something God has intentionally set apart to signify Jesus. Now, there are other tangible, sensible things in scripture that we would not properly call a sacrament, like Gideon's fleece, right? Gideon prays, oh Lord, if you're going to give us this victory, then make the fleece dry and the ground wet, then make the fleece wet and the ground dry, or some inverse to that. And, and the Lord does it, and that fleece serves as a visible, tangible, sensible sign of a future victory. But it's not a sacrament. It has something in it that's similar to a sacrament. Um, you could say the same about the burning bush. You could say the same about the water from the rock in the wilderness. Um, these are visible types, some of which are pointing to Jesus. The rock in the wilderness clearly was. Paul says that. First Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. And yet, um, it's not a sacrament for the whole church. Um, those were unique, redemptive, historical moments in which God did something similar in signifying Christ or signifying some benefit or victory through a sensible thing. So how do we know what is a God-intended sign? Um, well, Protestants are going to say that there are four sacraments after the fall. And only four. Now, there are there are other writers that are going to say the rainbow in the Noahic covenant was a sacrament. It is a visible, sensible sign that God's never going to flood the earth again. There's a rainbow around the throne of Jesus. Right. It does have something to do with Jesus coming and redeeming people. God's saying, I'm not going to destroy the world again because I want to redeem a people for myself. And here's a sign that, you know, that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do and bringing the redeemer to uh, to redeem people from the nations. So there, there is something redemptive about that. And some Reformed writers and Puritans will speak about uh, the rainbow as a sacrament or the Sabbath day 
in Old Covenant Israel as a sacrament. But generally, Protestants are going to say there, are, there have only been four sacraments after the fall for the church to serve as signs of what God has promised to do in Jesus. And what are they? Two in the Old Testament, two in the New. There's only two in the New. Lord's Supper and Baptism. Those are the two in the New. That's right. Those are the two in the New Testament. What are the two in the Old that are the counterparts? Chuck can answer. Circumcision. Circumcision and the Passover. Now, those two sacraments are representative of one another. Um, You can see how they correspond. Circumcision brings somebody into the visible church in the Old Covenant. Baptism brings them into the visible church in the New Covenant. Not, it doesn't save them in and of itself, but it does mark them off as members of the church. And the Passover lamb and Jesus being the lamb of God, he places himself on the table, represented by the bread and the wine. What's the difference between the two in the old and the two in the new? What's the big difference? These two are what? Bloody. These two are what? Not bloody. Why? Because the blood was shed. The blood was shed. So all of them are pointing to Jesus and what he's going to do at the cross. So they're all they're all signifying the same thing. Now, they all have nuances, which we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. They all have various features to them that make them uniquely important. But foundationally, all of them are pointing beyond themselves to the Redeemer who's going to shed his blood on the cross to redeem his people. Um, There is so much here. Jesus will speak of his death as baptism. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Um, He is circumcised. The Apostle Paul will talk about the circumcision of Christ in, in Colossians 2, where he is referring to his bloody death on the cross as circumcision. So we'll get into that, but but for now, we're talking about sacraments as signs and seals. They signify Jesus and the work of redemption. What does it mean that they're seals? Now, this is a much harder question, and this is one that has troubled people, particularly people who have come out of Roman Catholicism, and you know Rome has its seven sacraments, and they they find any. Um, any intimation of um, uh, ecclesiastical sanctioning to make things sacraments. Um, in the case of marriage, they see the word sacramentum in the Latin used there. This is a mystery, and I speak of Christ in the church. And Rome says, well, marriage is therefore a sacrament. Well, not everybody in the church gets married. And, and you know, marriage is good, but Paul says singleness is better if you can serve the Lord fully. And there's... there's um, There's not something that God is giving the whole church in marriage, which is why we don't believe that's a sacrament for the church per se. Um, And and Rome puts into the sacraments, and Rome will reject the idea of sacraments being seals. So if you read in the history of the church the debates that happen between... um, 
the post-Reformation scholastics, the reformers, and then their, their offshoots, the product of the reformers who were the greatest theologians that ever lived. And, um, and, and then you read their debates with um, the great cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church. One of the chief points of contention is over what is a sacrament. And Rome will adamantly deny that sacraments are seals of the promise of God's grace because Rome wants to say that a sacrament works ex opere operato out of itself. That it automatically, it has within itself the ability to confer the grace that is represented in it. And and I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Protestants gave their lives because they didn't believe in the idolatrous nature of the Mass. And that's a very, very important thing in church history. I know we live in the cult of niceness, I get that. I get that we're not we're not fighting Roman Catholicism the way the reformers were, but it's very important to know history. Um, Rome said this is Jesus sacrificed, and and the reformed theologians and the Anabaptists, for that matter, fought against um, that because that is idolatry to say this is the re-sacrifice of Jesus and the bread and the wine. So Rome will they will reject the idea of sealing. Now, what, what do we mean by sealing? Well, the idea of a seal carries the idea of authority. So Jesus will say um, about himself that he's the son and that the father has set his seal on him. You read that in John's gospel. The father has set his seal on him. What does he mean by that? He means the father has put his stamp of authority on the son, his approval of the son. He has he has put his name on him and all that's bound up in that as a witness to him. Now, there is a sense where with the sacraments, there is that sort of sealing with the authority of God. But more than that, God is sealing his promises to his people and guaranteeing them to them in the sacraments. So that what the Lord was doing with circumcision and Passover and um, baptism in the Lord's Supper is he is taking those things and he is saying, this is how serious I am when I tell you that the righteousness that you need, I will provide for you in Christ by faith alone. He is saying, I am promising you and I am vouchsafing that promise so that every time we either um, under we either are the recipients of the sacraments initially with baptism, ongoing with the Lord's Supper, or we observe the sacraments. The seal of God on his promises is being placed before the people of God to strengthen us in faith. Now, I love the quote by Robert Bruce. Um, We've mentioned it here recently, but on the Lord's Supper, he says, you know, in the supper, you don't get a better Christ, but you get Christ better. You don't get a better Christ, but you get him better than just hearing the gospel proclaimed, which is sufficient. But God is essentially saying in the sacraments, I want you to get Christ better. I want you to be more sure of my promises. That's why the sacraments are important. Now, we'll talk in the days ahead about... um, how someone can be um, partaking of the sacraments and not have any of the grace of it because of the depravity of their heart. Um, I do want to talk briefly here this morning about how 
the sacraments are means of grace. That's a word that maybe you've heard here. I'm sure Brian and Chuck have used it. It's a word that's sort of um, uh, been resuscitated in recent years. It, there was a long time where even Calvinistic churches in America didn't really use the, the term means of grace. And, and when we speak about means of grace, sometimes we will hear what we call the marks of the church, uh, the preaching of the word, the right administration of sacrament, church discipline. Sometimes people will, will say the means of grace are one and the same with the true marks of a church. And it is true. God uses all those things. Other times you'll hear that the means of grace are just the word and the sacraments. And sometimes you'll hear the word, the sacraments and prayer. Now, I tend to opt for that, the word, the sacraments, prayer. Um, it's difficult, right? Paul will actually say in Ephesians, let no corrupt speech come out of your mouth, but what is um, necessary that it may impart grace to the hearers. And so some people want to say, well, Christian fellowship is a means of grace. But there he is clearly intimating that the word coming through the instrumentality of the people of God is the means that imparts grace as we speak God's word to one another. And yet um, many people, I think, and we started with this, have reduced the means of grace just down to the word. And they want to say, God, essentially, functionally, they say, God only works through the word. Now, again, he works preeminently through the word. If, if one of the pastors here got up at the table and looked out at you, looked down at the table, didn't say a word, went through all the motions, broke the bread, poured out wine. The elders came up. They started distributing. He then held the bread up and started eating. Would you eat? Would that be a right administration of the sacrament? Why? Right. Just like with the tree in the garden, Adam wouldn't have known that there was anything special about this tree that God had set apart. If God had not said of all the trees of the garden, you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day that you eat of it and dying, you will die. It was it was absolutely dependent on the word. And so in that sense, the word has a preeminent place as a means of grace. And yet the error that we can fall into is that we can start to think then that the sacraments don't matter or that they're just sort of a, a nice thing that the church does that we could take it or leave it. I had a friend who went to a very big um, church in California with a very well-known, not John MacArthur, very well-known um, younger minister and uh, this man had come and was in our church for a number of years. And he said, you know, I was in that church for 11 years. And you know how often we did the Lord's Supper? I said, how often? He said, once. He said, I remember doing it once. And I confronted the pastor and said, you never do the Lord's Supper. Now, I, you know, I believe that. I think that's actually more common than we realize. Um, some, some churches do it every Sunday. Yes, we did it every Sunday at New Covenant. Um, and... I love that. I don't, that's a subject we can get into about, you know, what, how, how often does God require the Lord's Supper? The Bible doesn't give us a specific on that. But one of the errors that I think we often do is we reduce it and we make the supper less important than it is. The other error is that we make it more important than it is. 
Um, and we can do this with any sacrament. I, I was at a church of about 1,200 many years ago, and I would say 850 came regularly. And then on the one Sunday, uh, once a quarter when they had the supper, everybody showed up. And after a number of years of seeing that, I thought, there's a group in this church that thinks the supper is more important than it is <laughs> because they only show up when we have the supper. <laughs> so we can have too low a view of the sacraments. We can have too high a view of the sacraments. And so we want to get our minds settled on the fact that God has given us these as signs and seals to point to Christ and the benefits of redemption, to confirm us in the faith, to build us up and strengthen us. Um, Now, I always say to people, one of the reasons I love the sacraments, one of the reasons I loved weekly communion is I need all the grace I can get. I've had people say to me, well, yeah, but you run the risk of um, you run the risk of formality and and we're for intensity, not frequency. And well, then read your Bible once a year. It'll be really intense. And it's going to be really special that one time a year you read it. It's going to be like the, the greatest day of your year. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> um, so we want, to, we want to wrestle with those questions throughout this short study. But we want to get our minds settled first and foremost on the fact that God has given us signs and seals. That they are useful and beneficial. That they are necessary for the life of the church. That they are necessary in the life of believers. We need them. Yes, you can go to heaven without baptism in the Lord's Supper. But who would want to go through life laying aside the enormous privileges God has given us to strengthen us and build us up constantly as we come to worship him?